and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, August 20th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Margot Sanger Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Happy DNC week. <laughs> and my former KHN colleague Shafali Luthra, now at the 19th, a new nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom focusing on gender, politics, and policy. Welcome to the panel officially, Shafali. Hey there. So before we start, a note about the schedule. We are all taking some needed time off. The Supreme Court has finally announced when it will hear that case challenging the Affordable Care Act, November 10th, which is the week after the election. So to help remind you what's at stake, next week we'll repost our 10th anniversary of the ACA episode from back in March when people were busy thinking about other things. And the week after that will be dark. So we will reconvene here on September 10th. But in the meantime, there is plenty of news, particularly for August. We will start with the Democrats this week, who are, as we sit here this morning, three quarters of the way through their virtual nominating convention. Conventions have been for decades now giant party infomercials, although Democrats have always been pretty internally scrappy. And there have always been complainers who interrupt what's supposed to be, uh, you know, everybody's on the same page kind of fest. I feel like this extremely slick production done by necessity due to COVID has actually made it easier for Democrats to present a united front because there aren't all those people in the hall that reporters can go and find and say, you really wanted Bernie, right? Um, So the question is, are they really united in their desire to evict Trump from the White House? Or are we just not seeing the disarray that would normally be there at a convention? I mean, I can take a shot at that one. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we saw we saw the disarray and the and the disagreement during the primary. I mean, I remember because you know, all of us were writing about it for like what a year or something. I mean, it's certainly there. There really has been an effort to show a unified front. Um, even if you look at the platform, obviously the platform calls for a Biden-like plan. But for the first time, it sort of gives a nod to the Medicare for all. It actually mentions Medicare for all in the language of the platform and kind of gives a nod to those folks. You know, but you saw, I think, um, from Pelosi and others talking about this issue on Monday, they're really trying to put the emphasis on the steps that Biden has taken to his plan, you know, ever since winning the nomination and trying to forge that unity platform where, you know, I think previously he's lowered the age of by five years of where he's saying people should be able to enroll in Medicare. Um, he would lower the age. He would lower <laughs> it. Is it is still right. a plan. <laughs> right. I think they also added in some language saying that this public option plan that he wants to add to the marketplaces would be a plan that would be directly run by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services rather than a government-sponsored plan run by a private insurer. And so I think he's tried to kind of, you know, offer an olive branch but certainly there are members of sort of the far left of the party that aren't going to be satisfied by that. And so you've sort of seen like little rumblings from that, you know, that end of the party. I know that AOC kind of talked about that in her speech on Tuesday. And then you saw a couple of prominent progressive members. Uh, Ro Khanna of California was one of them who actually voted against the platform saying that they, you know, they really, you know, they're sort of purists on Medicare for all. And they think 
the Biden plan doesn't go far enough. But Julie, I think you're exactly right. And I think, you know, with the virtual nature of the convention this week, it's a lot easier for Democrats to kind of present the front that they want to present. Consequently, at least speaking for myself, it's much less interesting to watch because as reporters, we love drama and conflict, but they're really able to, it might be really good for them that like they can have a virtual convention because they can really keep control of their public image. Yeah, I mean, it, because it is sort of so, I, I use the word slick, but I mean that actually in a good way. I mean, there have been very few technical glitches. It's been sort of, it's been weirdly watchable. Um, yep. But yeah, way fewer talking heads than you would normally see. And you actually get to see more of the speeches than you normally would, um, because there isn't all that other, all the rest of that that tends to detract uh, attention away from what's going on, on the stage. I'm old enough to remember poor Bill Clinton, who gave a rather infamous uh, keynote speech, I guess it was in 1988, uh, and they didn't turn the house lights down and absolutely nobody listened to him. Well, the other thing I would add is, um, you know, under normal circumstances, I think we would hear a pretty different healthcare message coming from the DNC. I mean, they sort of, and I, I hate to say it as an opportunity, but, you know, because people have died from COVID and it's an awful, uh, you know, awful tragedy our country is facing. But, you know, who could have predicted that they actually, without exaggerating, can stand up on a stage and say, under the watch of President Trump, almost 200,000 Americans have died of COVID and probably more will have died of COVID by the end of this. And so, you know, I think like what I would have expected before COVID is they would have spent a lot of time hammering this, you know, lawsuit against the ACA and the fact that the administration is refusing to defend the law. That was certainly the messaging that they pushed in 2018. But you've actually kind of heard relatively, it's funny, it would have been major news that the Supreme Court announced this week, it's hearing the case on November 10th, but it, it didn't even really get much attention because because of what a strange, you know, news environment, uh, pandemic environment we're in right now. Oh, one thing that's been been interesting to me is that the primary was very policy focused. I mean, not just in healthcare and other areas too, but of course, especially in healthcare, there was a really kind of robust debate about exactly, you know, how are we going to make health insurance and healthcare affordable for people? What should that system look like? What is the appropriate role for government? You know, should we be doing Medicare for all or something different? I do think that the convention message is much like sort of gauzier and vague. You know, they did a section two days ago that was specifically focused on healthcare, and it was sort of, you know, I mean, it was it was really nicely done. It was, uh, you know, individuals talking about challenges that they'd faced getting uh, their care covered. It was sort of a retrospective history of Joe Biden's role in passing the Affordable Care Act. So I don't want to make it seem like it was without content. There is healthcare stuff that's happening, and it does come up in these speeches, but. This convention is really does not feel to me as though it's very policy heavy. It's very focused on sort of Joe Biden's humanity, on his biography, on the kind of new inclusiveness of this Democratic Party, um, and of course, on President Trump. Behind the scenes, though, I do think that there, you know, some of the current harmony is the result of efforts that the Biden campaign made to reach out to uh, you know, Sanders supporters and other Democrats on the left, you know, a few weeks and months ago, they put together these sort of task force, you know, joint committees that went through every part of the policy platform and came to these sort of consensus statements. And obviously, the um, Sanders aligned people didn't get everything that they wanted, but they sort of signed this document and said, we're okay with this consensus set of policies. And out of that came some of the things that Paige mentioned were the Biden plan, which I think was, you know, already pretty ambitious relative to our current policy environment, sort of 
just nudged like the teeniest bit further to the left. And in some other areas of economic policy, um, education and other things, it seems like it moved a little bit more. So I think there was a lot of work to lay a groundwork for this kind of comedy that we're seeing right now. And and I think for that reason, less of a need to sort of litigate these policy details in the speeches. Yeah, it was almost a throwaway line when Bernie Sanders was, you know, sort of praising Biden's health plan. But that had to have been, you know, such an enormous moment. I mean, Shafali, you've paid a lot of attention to, to the Medicare for all wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, is it just that Trump is such an existential threat right now that they're willing to put that aside? I think that's really it. And one of the things I was struck by was, the presence right of A.D. Barkin, who is this really prominent Medicare for all advocate who famously interviewed a lot of really high profile Democratic candidates. Joe Biden did did not. Most yes, of them. Yeah. Except Joe Biden, who did not sit in an interview with him. Um, well, he did eventually, didn't he? I think well after the primary had been been settled. Yeah. Um, but right. Seeing him come on and this this person who has been a really vocal and, and important advocate for Medicare for all talk about the need to elect Joe Biden, I think, is a really valuable signal about what a lot of progressives see as as so vital right now, especially in a pandemic when, as, as Paige mentioned, right, it's hard to talk about sort of the details and nuances of this when people are dying at such a vast rate. So does it, I mean, I'm, I kind of wonder going forward, this is such an odd year. I mean, normally the general election campaign starts right after Labor Day and or starts Labor Day weekend and goes until Election Day. But of course, pretty much every speaker at the convention and probably will happen again next week at the Republican convention saying, you know, get your ballots and vote right now. I mean, I'm not positive the filing deadlines are for some of the other candidates on other ballots have passed. But, you know, it, are, are we going to see anything about any of the issues we expected to hear about drug prices and surprise bills? Or is it really all going to be COVID, the, the, the health space? will be consumed by, you know, um, by litigating Trump's response to the COVID epidemic. Larry Levitt made a really smart point right after Harris's selection was announced, right, which is that healthcare will be on the ballot, but just the attention is going to be so much on the current administration's response to the pandemic that there isn't just as much oxygen for what a, a Biden-Harris administration would do on healthcare, whether that's drug prices, whether that's maternal mortality, whether that is universal healthcare in some form. You know, this makes me think a little bit of uh, what is it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where in normal times, people could be concerned about these systemic problems in the healthcare system that we spent so much time last year talking about with high drug prices and stuff. But I think the focus of regular Americans shift, not that they're not worried about that anymore, but when you are have lost your job, when your child can't go to school, when you can't visit your elderly parents because you're worried about passing a highly infectious virus to them. I think that's the problem, right? And the pandemic is the problem that is like front and center in front of people right now. And so I think it's going to be really hard for people to kind of worry about those other issues when we've got a pandemic. So I, I, I think Democrats recognize that. I mean, if we see a President Biden next year, um, my guess is that those priorities Democrats have outlined are going to be pushed back and postponed a little bit because the public is going to be waiting for them to keep working on advancing a vaccine, getting more testing and fixing those like really immediate problems that are facing people. That's just my sense of it. It's not just the presidential race that's happening in this year. Um, you know, we're focusing on the Biden-Trump 
race right now, because I do think that is the centerpiece of the Democratic convention. And because, you know, that's just what all of us tend to focus on. But I think a lot of congressional and Senate campaigns are going to get into more nuts and bolts on health care. I think it was a really winning message for the Democrats in 2018. I'm already hearing from, you know, campaigns that like want me to write stories about some like, you know, little dark secret in the or, you know, bad, unfortunate vote from a Republican uh, incumbent on health care. I think that there is an acknowledgement among a lot of Democrats that this is a good issue for them and a winning issue. And I, and I also think, you know, it will come back. You know, there will be questions about this in the presidential debates and other forums. Um, you can see that President Trump uh, seems concerned about his message on health care because he's really, over the last few weeks since his campaign management changed, he's really uh, begun talking about it a lot more. He put out these executive orders on Drug prices, which we talked about before, were a little bit sort of symbolic. Uh, he's been saying that he wants to do an executive order on pre-existing conditions, which, you know, also seems like a little bit of a weak effort. But it's, you know, he was tweeting about drug prices yesterday. It seems clear that the president feels like he needs to have a health care agenda that is not just a COVID agenda, but sort of some of these older issues because voters continue to be concerned about them. And I do think that uh, people running for office on the Democratic side are going to keep bringing them up. Oh, I was going to mention, we had a really interesting and what I thought was kind of enlightening poll in the Post um, earlier this week, just looking at the link between the level of concern people have about the virus and then how they feel about President Trump. And the poll actually found that if among Republicans and Republican-leaning voters who report high levels of concern about getting the virus, they are more likely to go for Biden than for Trump. And it's still among those voters, a majority say still say they're going to vote for Trump, to be clear. But that percentage increases dramatically for Biden when you look at the people that are really concerned. And that was just interesting, you know, because you watch how President Trump talks about this in his effort to downplay it. And on one hand, you're thinking like this is insane and a really, really terrible look for him as president to be downplaying this. But from a political standpoint, the poll seems to at least give some explanation for his own political calculus in, in kind of how he talks about the virus. Chipotle, you want to say something? I mean, I was just going to say to Margo's point, right, we're already seeing Republicans in really tight Senate races or even losing what they should be winning Senate races, trying to tie themselves to, to pre-existing condition protections, which, I mean, Democrats are having a lot of fun with that. It's really easy to, to point to the lawsuit or the millions of repeal and replace votes to sort of poke holes in that argument. And, and just, I would say just saying that you're you want to protect pre-existing conditions, um, since, since we're quoting Larry Levitt here, uh, I, I retweeted a thread that he pointed out. You can't just protect pre-existing conditions in a vacuum. I mean, the whole reason the Affordable Care Act is so complicated is that in order to make it viable for the insurers, you have to you know, that that's why you need the subsidies. You need you need other things. Um, otherwise, you'll just get an individual market full of sick people with pre-existing conditions and no one else we'll be able to afford to buy it. Paige, one more comment, and then we got to move on. I was just <laughs> going to add that I didn't hear this. This is just my conjecture, but I would imagine there was a significant amount of disappointment among Democrats when they saw the Supreme Court's not going to be hearing this case until after the election, because from their perspective, it would have been a really awesome and perfectly timed messaging opportunity had the oral arguments been in October. I have a contrarian view on this. I actually think it's better for the Democrats that it's after the election because the Democrats can spend the entire time talking about the existential threat to the law. And if they have the oral arguments, I would imagine it would become pretty clear that they're not going to have Roberts with. I mean, I just I would find it shocking if Roberts 
you know, were to in any way support this case, given that he's he's come down on the side of the law in much harder cases than this one. So I think in some ways um, it might be better for the Democrats to they, they'd have more realist chance of saying that the, the law is still at risk if they're hearing it the week after. No, that's a good point. Although I would say like that assumes that you sort of your average voter even understands the nuances of all of this and understands like, I mean, when you write about this, like I hate writing about this because like there is literally no way to explain this lawsuit. I'm sorry. I know we need to move on, Julie, but there's no way to explain it in like one sentence. You have to like write the history of 2012 and stuff. And I think for Democrats, like, I mean, your average voter, I would say, would probably see just the headline you know, and then hear the Democratic lines, regardless of what Robert says or doesn't say in the oral arguments. Um, but anyhow, November 10th, we'll all be at the Supreme Court. It's really easy for Democrats to say on the campaign trail that they are suing to overturn the entire law because they are suing to overturn the entire law. All right, moving on. Um, let's talk about the post office. How does that connect to health care? Well, it turns out the prescription drug debate is spilling into the post office debate. It seems that among the dangerous mail delays uh, are people, particularly seniors and veterans not getting their prescription drugs in a timely way. And I imagine that since the pandemic, a lot of people who used to go to the drugstore are opting for mail delivery. I know that is true in my personal case. Could this turn into a big election issue by itself? You know, the mail is part of our healthcare system and it's not working. I don't know if it would be an election issue, but it does seem like a public health concern. Um, I mean, beyond we have seniors, of course, we have veterans. Like in the pandemic, so many doctors have talked about turning to telemedicine to to get people the medications they need. Birth control is another big one, right? Like people are trying to mail order birth control. They can't get it. And it's yeah, I think it's harder to to sort of make the, the catchy headline or tweet about the post office in mail compared to the post office and your right to vote. But this is definitely a problem for people who are trying to stay home and avoid the virus. I mean, I guess I'm a little bit unclear still on how widespread of a problem it is. There certainly have been anecdotes, and it seems like there has have been more reports among veterans, especially because uh, I think 80% of the drugs that they get through the VA or mail order. So it definitely would impact them disproportionately if there were delays. I wrote a story about this earlier this week, and I called up some of the major PBMs and pharmacies and just asked them if they had heard any reports. And they they all told me either they weren't hearing anything or only like a handful of complaints from people. Now, it may be like in their interest to kind of sweep under the rug complaints, although I, I'm not really sure how, how they're kind of looking at that. But I mean, I can say like as a patient, you know, I, I'm type one diabetic and I get a fair number of my stuff through the mail. I haven't actually experienced any delays yet. You know, if obviously it is a big health issue, if this becomes a really widespread thing, I guess I'm just not sure it is a widespread problem at this point. It's hard to know exactly what's going on with the mail. Um, Although I can just from monitoring my next door feed, there's a lot of mail problems, you know, in my zip code. uh, Or actually, I'm still on my old zip code, too. So in in my current zip code and my old zip code. Um, But I feel like this whole sort of postal service debate uh, is doing for the postal service what 2017 and the repeal and replace effort did for Medicaid, which is to say that people supported it, but they didn't know how much until they thought that it was at risk. Uh, There was a I saw a picture on Twitter yesterday of somebody had painted graffitied on just one of the mailboxes said i love the u.s postal service like i can't imagine seeing that before sorry margo yeah i just was gonna say i think that the concerns about the postal office 
clearly seemed to be a live political issue. The Democrats, you know, came back early from their recess just so they could vote on this. They're clearly doing that because they think that it's important, but also because they think it's important to make a statement about that, that it will help them with voters to be seen as being serious about the post office. And, you know, I think part of why people are on such sort of heightened alert about it is we don't actually know exactly what's happened and how far reaching the effects are. So as Paige said, you know, people are like looking for their mail. And, and, you know, of course, like sometimes people's prescription drugs always get delayed, but we're hearing about all of them now. But I also think over time, we don't really know exactly what is going to happen. Is mail service going to improve because the sort of streamlining that's allegedly been happening is, you know, the postal workers uh, adjust to those new realities and they get more efficient? Will there be additional cuts or changes that will be hard to detect that will result in further slowdowns of mail? I mean, I don't really think we know exactly where this is going. The postmaster general this week said he was going to reverse some planned uh, policy changes until after the election. But he did leave vague whether some of the previous changes would be reversed. Uh, for example, he was a little bit unclear about whether uh, overtime would be approved for postal workers, which I think is an important way that they deal with, you know, various kind of ebbs and flows of mail to sort of scale up work. And we also, of course, don't know if postal workers uh, become sick with COVID and can't work, uh, you know, if overtime won't be approved for their colleagues, that could lead to kind of rolling slowdowns in mail delivery as well. So what I would say is that we don't know what's happening with prescription drug delivery right now. But if it becomes a widespread problem, we are definitely going to know about it. And I think it could rise to a level of political salience even more than it has in these last few weeks when we've been paying attention for the first time to the post office. There's one ironic thing I, I just wanted to note. I was looking at the post office's latest financial report. And ironically, the pandemic from a financial perspective is actually quite good for the post office because obviously, you know, Amazon and other orders are way up. Um, and so they said they're going to become insolvent. What was it in next April if mail orders go back to their normal pre-pandemic levels, but they will not go insolvent until October 2021 if the levels remain elevated as they are now. So it's but, you know, I think we should note that the post office has been losing billions of dollars like every single year for like 15 years. Like I remember writing about the post office when I first started covering Congress like a decade ago. So I think a lot of this is probably politics like Democrats see it to their advantage to like make this an issue. And obviously Trump doesn't help himself by making these claims that like he's trying to undermine mail in voting. But this is not a new problem. And this has been around for a really long time. No, and a lot of it and we're not going to delve into this here, but a lot of it has to do with the whole pre-funded pension and health care issue. I mean, the post office isn't actually losing as much money as it seems to be because it's required to do things that other businesses are not. But before we all started talking about the post office nearly all the time, we were talking about whether or not to send kids back to school. And we are seeing kids going back to school and not always successfully. Who could have seen these things coming? At the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, not one of the country's top party schools, I would add. Photos of large and maskless gatherings were quick followed by clusters of COVID infections, which were just as quickly followed by the school changing its mind about in-person classes and going fully online. That was quickly followed by Notre Dame and Michigan State reversing their earlier decisions to have in-person classes. Speaking as an old fogey here, I have my doubts about any college being able to pull off lots of young people in relatively confined areas without becoming a hotbed of virus spread. Or am I just showing my age here? You're not showing your age. You know, you would think that some of these like smaller colleges in some of these smaller towns that could actually, you know, do regular testing might 
perhaps possibly be able to get a handle on it. But I can't see any of these big state schools being able to do this. Uh, the University of Michigan, my alma mater, um, put out a statement yesterday that said if they were to test everybody in the university community twice a week, it would be more than half the tests done in the state of Michigan which seems sort of impractical. I think this all comes back to the things that we've been talking about over these last few months, which is like, we just do not have a robust and scalable testing system in this country. And I think that is not the particular fault of universities like the University of Michigan. Like, I don't think that Michigan's reopening plan is particularly realistic given the paucity of tests, but I think that they are being honest about the availability of tests that they have. And, you know, if they were going to pretend that they could test everyone twice a week, like there would not be enough tests for those people. It wouldn't work. They would take too long to come back. And I think the fact that we don't have really good, robust and plentiful testing really eliminates what seems to be an obvious precondition for trying to have, you know, communal living and schooling among young adults, you know, in dormitory style housing, you know, this is a real problem. But I think there is a tendency to blame young people for being imprudent. And I think that that is not the fundamental problem. I think the fundamental problem is that we don't have the virus under control and we don't have the tools available that would help make it safe. And so you could actually mitigate when you do have these outbreaks. And so what that means is that basically all of these uh, young people are going to have to do remote learning. Uh, I, I do want to also just say that it's such a bummer. Like it's really terrible for, uh, for people to not be able to attend college in the way that they want to. And I think a lot of states have been feeling sort of fiscal pressure to come back in person, despite probably a lot of advice that they've received from public health officials that this kind of thing was going to happen because, you know, people are just going to be much less likely to enroll in school if they can't go in person. And I think states are really facing a lot of fiscal stress already because of the COVID pandemic and, you know, their loss of tax revenue. And so I think, you know, a lot of these schools like the University of North Carolina might have felt that they really needed to offer this authentic kind of normal in-person experience in order to get students to pay tuition. And obviously that's backfired, but I have some sympathy for the stresses that they've been facing. You know, the whole back to school thing um, is not even going well in places that should be able to hold in-person classes like New York City, uh, where the positivity rate is something like 1%. But I'm seeing lots of complaints from teachers about a lack of planning, a lack of instructions and supplies for cleaning and continuing worries about what to do if someone tests positive. I mean, Paige, you're, you're, you're the mom on this panel of school-age kids. Um, I assume you're not looking forward to any of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I fully admit my bias here. I've got a six-year-old who's going into first grade. And one of the things that I think is kind of weird, given the, the research we have so far about the virus, is the fact that you see a lot of colleges trying to go back in person. And then you see a lot of the elementary schools doing all virtual. And when you look at what we know so far about how people spread the virus, it just seems it would make more sense for it to be the reverse. Because we know research has showed that teenagers seem to shed the virus at similar rates to adults. So, but we like don't actually know that's the case, especially for kids, you know, that are younger than 10. We're still learning more about that. And even some research has indicated perhaps they don't transmit it as much as older people. I might also add in the fact that, I mean, this seems probably obvious to everybody, but like it's much, much easier for high schoolers and college students to do remote learning. Um, you know, I joke with some of my friends who have preschool age kids and these preschools are giving them these virtual preschool programs. If you're a mom, like, you know that, like, trying to sit there with your four or five-year-olds and do virtual preschool, 
that's that's a terrible idea. Like that sounds like so painful. That is not why your kid goes to preschool. Your kid goes to preschool to interact with other kids, to play, to be active, not to sit in front of a computer screen and stare at it for hours. So I am not convinced the way that we are approaching the school thing in the U.S. really makes a lot of sense from a scientific standpoint. And then also when you just think about the negative repercussions and, you know, Margo, I agree with you. I mean, I feel a lot of sympathy for college students and parents who are being asked to pay full tuition from private schools for an all virtual experience. But at the same time, I don't think you're going to have as much of a detrimental effect on kids of those age that you're going to have on younger kids, especially those from disadvantaged households who are now being told that they have to stay home all the time. And it's a really hard situation for for private schools. Um, I know for a fact in my area, um, the parents that can afford private schools are trying to enroll their kids in the private schools because those are the schools that are offering the in-person learning And this is further deepening the divide between the wealthier families and the less wealthy families. I mean, like, I, you know, my daughter's going to be going to a private school this year. And our school has told us that, you know, they they've had like a five fold increase in the number of inquiries from parents. I feel so many sides of this debate. Um, It is a really, really hard thing. And to Margot's point, it's really unfortunate that we're even in this situation um, to begin with and that we didn't have the sufficient testing ramp up um, and suppression of the virus earlier this summer. I do want to just throw in one one small thing, even for for younger students, though. I think we talk about the risk of, of transmission by children, but for teachers, right, it's also getting to school, getting home from school, interacting with other adults and I mean, if we look at the demographics of teachers, right, they are, I mean, they're predominantly women. A lot of them are of the age where they could become pregnant. A lot of them are also much older. And those are two groups that are at heightened vulnerability from the virus. And I'm thinking of all of the, the teachers I've talked to, especially pregnant ones, who are just so terrified of what, what going back to school means for them because they don't know a way to do it safely in a poorly ventilated classroom when airborne transmission is a concern. And even if your kids might not be spreading the virus, other people around you could be. I was going to say, you know, until until now, we were so worried about the amount of screen time that younger kids were getting. And now we're basically asking them to look at screens all the time, which is just another way that the pandemic has sort of turned everything on its head. Yeah, I don't mean um, to say that it's like a particularly terrible bummer for college students. I think this is a situation that's really, really hard for a lot of groups. And I do think that the loss for young children of being unable to go to school and of their parents to be unable to rely on public school to help educate their kids and also, you know, supervise them during the day is a much bigger problem. And I think I'm going to have much longer lasting consequences. But, you know, all of this is, you know, because the virus is not suppressed, because we don't have good testing and response in place, all of these different parts of our society are suffering because we just can't go back to normal. And it still sucks for college students, which actually we're <laughs> going to talk about. We're going to, well, it leads into my next topic, which is mental health, which I've been wanting to talk about uh, for the last couple of weeks. So thank you, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for coming out with a new report to give us a news hook. Um, according to the CDC, in late June, 40% of U.S. adults reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse issues. The problem was particularly severe with younger adults, racial and ethnic minorities, essential workers, and unpaid adult caregivers. Twice as many adults said they'd considered suicide, as said in a similar survey two years ago, including a quarter of young adults. Think about that for a minute. A quarter of young adults reported in late June that they had had suicide thoughts. 
Um, given that we can't seem to control the virus, is there anything we can do about the mental health impacts of it? This is something I've been thinking about for a really long time, um, because I mean, from the beginning of the pandemic, right, it's been really clear that there is going to be a long-term psychological harm for a lot of society. And the CDC numbers are really interesting. They are, I think, a big part of the story. I, I can't say why young people are are so affected, although, I mean, we do spend a lot of time outside. We We obviously don't now, but One thing I've been thinking about as well has been the gendered and racial implications of this. And the CDC found, right, that men were at higher risk of reporting suicidal ideation, but low-grade depression and anxiety are much more common amongst women. They're also much more common amongst transgender and non-binary people. And and we're seeing that that play out because these are groups that have been disproportionately harmed by by the economy and by by things like caregiving. They're working on the front lines more. They're in charge of, of kids, of schooling, especially if they're moms. And we're seeing that play out again on racial lines, right, where black and Latina moms are just reporting way higher numbers of depression and anxiety. And they're also the ones least served by our mental health system. And no one's talking about how to fix this. You know, I th- I think actually for all the things Trump says all the time, as we talk about frequently, you know, he had a point when he said in sometime in the spring, something about we can't let the solution be worse than the disease or what was it? The solution worse than the disease, I think. Anyhow, it kind of went to that point of you've got all of these ripple effects from the shutdowns. And this is not to say we shouldn't have done the shutdowns. Um, but, you know, like depression and anxiety were already surging among kids and young adults, especially among young teenage girls. And that's been linked to increased use of screen time and social media. And so now we have this pandemic and it's just worsening all of that. And now we're telling kids, you can't go interact with your friends in person. You can't go play sports. You can't do all this stuff. You just have to like do things virtually. So I'm not surprised at all, frankly, that we're seeing this. I feel like the solution has to be that we need to get the virus under control and do like other countries have done and find a way to move past this. Um, I mean, we can try to like boost mental health services and such. And that I think certainly can be helpful. But I think if a lot of the core needs of people aren't satisfied, it's going to be really hard. Um, People need to live in community. People need human interaction. People need strong relationships um, to be mentally healthy. Yeah. So I just I don't know. I'm sort of pessimistic about the whole thing. We just we need to find a way to move past this pandemic. Beyond the pandemic, I would also just want to throw out there that economic stressors are a big portion of what people have have told me is is contributing to depression and anxiety. And I mean, child care, like if we don't have a child care plan for for moms in particular who are trying to work, trying to like take care of their children, trying to maybe take care of their older relatives also, like we are not going to have a sustainable solution to the mental health problem we're seeing. I think it, yeah, everything we've talked about is contributing to this. All right, well, finally this week, a federal district court judge has, at least for now, halted the Trump administration's effort to eliminate anti-discrimination protections in healthcare for transgender people. You were just talking about Shafali. Margot, you wrote about this case. What's the latest on these rules? This has been a sort of weird legal and regulatory ping pong that's been happening for many years now. But the Affordable Care Act uh, included a provision that said that healthcare providers can't discriminate against patients on the basis of a whole bunch of different factors, one of which was sex. 
And the Obama administration interpreted that language to mean that transgender patients uh, need to be treated, that doctors can't refuse to treat them, that doctors can't refuse to provide them services that they would give to non-trans patients, and that insurance companies had to pay for those services. So this was sort of a big civil rights win for transgender people when the Obama administration proposed this rule. It immediately uh, wound up in litigation and the courts were kind of split on it. Most of the courts that considered this question said that it was a valid interpretation of the provision in the law. But uh, one judge, a judge that we all know well, because he's also involved in the Affordable Care Act case, uh, said no, that uh, this was an inappropriate reading of the law and that these transgender protections were unlawful and that he established initially a preliminary injunction preventing the enforcement of the rule and then later, much later, um, issued a final ruling uh, sort of backing that up, saying that they were invalid. So that's like a little bit of backdrop. Then the Trump administration came into office and, you know, there were a lot of people in um, high up in the administration who I think were not on board for a lot for expanding transgender rights. And they have been pursuing policy, not just in healthcare, but in lots of other areas in education and housing and the military, trying to curtail uh, civil rights expansions for transgender people. And in healthcare, it was no different. They came out with a new rule and their new rule basically said like, no, we don't consider this to be a valid category that's subject to civil rights protections and transgender people just have to, you know, go through the world and deal with whatever discrimination they may face in the healthcare setting. That also has been the subject of litigation. And the final rule from the Trump administration, the kind of final policy was released on a Friday. And then on a Monday, we had this landmark Supreme Court case uh, that dealt with transgender rights in the employment setting. And the Supreme Court said very clearly, like, sex discrimination includes discrimination against transgender people. It evaluated a different law, but it was a law that had very different, a uh, very similar language. And the logic of the decision really seems to apply to the healthcare setting as well. And so at the time that that decision came out, a lot of uh, legal experts said this Trump administration rule is like not long for this world. Uh, but this is the first court that has come out and officially said, no, if you read the Supreme Court's decision, it seems pretty clear that this rule can't stand. So they now there is now this is a preliminary injunction. Uh, so it's basically saying you cannot enforce this rule until the case is concluded. Uh, and so the case will continue to move forward. So we're kind of in this weird limbo where the Obama administration rule is not in effect and the Trump administration rule is not in effect. And it seems like over the long run, probably we're going to end up with a set of policies that is more like the Obama administration rule because that's what the courts are going to approve now. But it could be kind of a long road because obviously you have an administration that does not support that policy that's going to drag its feet as long as it's in office. And you know these appeals and these court cases are going to take a long time, as they often do. Yes. And I should point out somebody somebody tweeted about the ACA case. You know, if Biden is elected. Can he just drop the case? Um, it's not the administration's case. Remember, it's the Republican attorneys general. So a changing administration wouldn't necessarily change some of these lawsuits. All right. Well, that is as much time we have for the news this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Shafali, why don't you go first this week? All right. I'm so excited about this story. Um, it is from KHN by my former deskmate, Victoria Knight. It is Back to the Future, Trump's History of Promising a Health Plan That Never Comes. 
and you can guess what it's about. But Victoria very, very skillfully and thoroughly goes through as much as she can, as much as seems feasible, of the president's promises to bring out a great, beautiful new healthcare plan. None of them have ever come to fruition, she points out. She also notes that the president spells healthcare as one word. And it ends after this, you know, really long history and context of all of the the times the president made this promise and what the surrounding legal battle was to the end when right before publication they asked the white house when this plan is coming and they never heard back if you're looking for a very exhaustive record of the president's claims on health reform i think this is a really good one to read i i was so glad that victoria did that story basically so i didn't have to <laughs> margo um, i wanted to highlight a story from the atlantic called the plan that could give us our lives back by robinson meyer and alexis madrigal uh, these are two journalists that have been very involved in this kind of nationwide project tracking the um, testing numbers and the testing results uh, from COVID around the country And they are advancing an argument that's being brought forward by a sort of small group of influential epidemiologists that we should just forget about trying to scale up these PCR tests, these really, really accurate tests that are considered the gold standard for diagnostic testing in the healthcare setting and just acknowledge that we can't do it and instead move to a kind of testing that is cheaper and easier and a little bit less sensitive. So these are tests, I think the sort of best analogy is like something like a pregnancy test. You know, you can take it in your home. It's just a little strip and it gives you kind of a yes or no answer. And I think a lot of people in epidemiology have been reluctant and in the FDA also have been reluctant to approve these kinds of tests because they just don't detect virus at low levels. So if you're like screamingly infectious, you are going to test positive on one of these tests. But maybe if you're at the beginning or the end of your experience with COVID, you might test negative and still be infected. And so doctors tend to think like that's not a good diagnostic test. But what this article argues, and there was an article in the New York Times about this as well, is that because these less sensitive tests potentially could be scaled up much more easily, they don't require as much uh, equipment and as many of these supplies that are in shortage, that you could make them something that people are taking, you know, every day or every couple of days. So, you know, maybe it would miss you when you're just a little bit infectious and you might go outside that day, but that's okay because you might not actually spread the virus. But if you took it again the next day when your viral load was higher and it got caught, then it would have a big public health impact. So there is definitely a debate among experts about whether these kinds of tests are better. But I think it's a very interesting possibility for the future as kind of a next best approach, given the challenges in scaling up these PCR tests. And there is a test from a bunch of um, Yale researchers that did just get emergency use approval from the FDA last week. So that's kind of the first test of this sort that seems really scalable um, that the FDA has given its blessing to. So I'm curious about whether we will see the expansion of this technology going forward. Yes, that Yale test is one that was funded by the NBA. So because for they need it for obvious reasons. Paige. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my story is from Stat News, and it's called Seven Months Later, What We Know About COVID-19 and the Pressing Questions Remain. And it's by Andrew Joseph, Helen Branswell, and Elizabeth Cooney. And this caught my eye because, you know, as a reporter covering this virus, it's been really challenging just because we're learning about it. So we're covering about it, covering the virus as new research is coming out all the time. And so what this story tries to do is just kind of lay out some, what are like some key things that we've discovered about the virus over the last couple of months is they lay out a 
a number of really interesting things. I guess the one that I would highlight is that there was the thought for a, a while that people could had a really long time period in which they could transmit the virus because they actually were testing positive for weeks and weeks and weeks after they had had it. In fact, I had friends tell me that as well. Um, but what, we, what we've since discovered is that the period in which you're infectious is actually much shorter. It's around 10 days that you can actually be shedding um, live virus which is actually like pretty good news, all things considered. But that was just one of several findings that this article kind of goes through and explains. Um, so I would recommend it for anyone who just kind of like wants to brush up on like the most recent findings about how the virus works. All right. Well, mine is from the Washington Post. It's called, Can Dogs Detect the Novel Coronavirus? The Nose, N-O-S-E, Nose, K-N-O-W-S, by Francis Dead Sellers. And it's about one of several studies going on right now in the U.S. and overseas to train dogs to sniff out patients with even asymptomatic COVID-19. And I chose the story not only because I've actually trained with one of the people working on this particular project uh, in Pennsylvania. She's one of the U.S.'s top obedience dog trainers, and her husband is a top detection dog trainer. But what's really fascinating is that this work could lead to a workable artificial nose because it's now cost prohibitive to train enough dogs to do the work to sniff out everybody with COVID. And uh, the idea is that this artificial nose uh, could be used for things other than COVID for which you need, you know, really sensitive ability to smell, which obviously humans don't have. Anyway, it's a really interesting read. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Shivali? I'm at Shivali L. Paige? At PW underscore Cunningham. Margo? At Sanger Cats. As I mentioned at the top, we will repost our 10th anniversary of the ACA show next week. And the week after we're on vacation, we will meet you back here in September. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.